The Sacred Changemakers podcast is supported by Coaches Business School, helping the world's most caring coaches build a purpose-driven and profitable business that makes a meaningful impact in our world. Check out their unique frameworks and methods to help you transform and grow your business. Now is the time to build a bridge from what you want in life to include what the world needs. You can do well in business and do good, and together we can make a meaningful difference. Find out more at coachesbusinessschool.com. Hello and welcome back to the Sacred Changemakers podcast. You're in for a real treat today because this conversation is really one of my all-time favorites on the podcast. And it's with a very special guest who is so aligned with our mission here at Sacred Changemakers. And that guest is Raj Sisodia, who is a FEMSA Distinguished University Professor of Conscious Enterprise and Chairman of the Conscious Enterprise Center at Tecnologico de Monterrey in Mexico. He's also co-founder and Chairman Emeritus of Conscious Capitalism, Inc., and Raj has a PhD in business from Columbia University. Now, he is, of course, a best-selling author, having written 15 books that include Conscious Capitalism, Everybody Matters, Shakti Leadership, Firms of Endearment, The Healing Organization, and his most recent release, Awaken, The Path to Purpose, Inner Peace, and Healing. Now, Raj has worked with numerous companies, including AT&T, Verizon, LG, Borg Warner, Kraft Foods, Whole Foods Market, Tata, Siemens, Sprint, Volvo, IBM, Walmart, and McDonald's. And believe me, the list of iconic companies just goes on. And you're going to hear this, this depth of experience and wisdom gained from his career and his life in our conversation today. Because in today's conversation, Raj takes us on something of a journey to explore the flaws of business, the current business school system, the prevalence of ego-driven leadership, and the urgent need for change in the way that we approach business. He draws from his extensive research and highlights so much of the data that underpins his work. And he shares a shocking statistic that I hadn't heard before about the alarming incidence of sociopaths and psychopaths in both high security prisons, so not a surprise there, I guess, but also executive boardrooms. He challenges the prevailing mindset that prioritizing power and money above all else and delves into the underlying causes such as fear-based thinking and unhealed traumas that contribute to this destructive paradigm. But amidst all of that darkness and all of the challenges that, you know, he's viscerally aware that we're facing as humans today, Raj uncovers a real glimmer of hope. He shares his personal transformation as he navigated through his own journey of healing and self-discovery, from visits to the Himalayas to encounters with plant-based medicine. Raj's experiences opened his consciousness and provided profound insights into life and also his purpose. And through his groundbreaking work, particularly in the development of conscious capitalism, he's embraced a deeply purposeful mission to reinvent the way we do business and educate others about a more humanistic approach. So join us as we dive into the concept of healing organizations, the power of love and truth, and the collective shift towards a purpose-driven future. It's going to be eye-opening and inspiring, and we'll challenge your perception of business, inviting you to consider 
maybe you too becoming a sacred change maker. So without further ado, let me introduce you to Raj Sisodia. Hey Raj, welcome to the Sacred Change Makers podcast, my friend. <laughs> Thank you, Jane. Really glad to be with you today. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you because your work has been something that I followed for many years. And, um, you know, in many ways, it's so aligned to our audience. And I know they're just going to love this conversation. So I want to start really, they've just heard, our listeners have just heard your professional bio. But I'd like to kind of go beneath the surface a little bit and ask you something about the real life human that lies behind that bio. Who's he? Well, so I am a business professor. I guess if I had to identify myself primarily, it would be as a, as a business professor for the last 38 years. Um, and for the last uh, 20 or so of those years, have been on a mission in a way to change the story of business, um, doing research, writing books, uh, co-founding the conscious capitalism movement, uh, and speaking about it all over the world uh, to really get awaken people uh, and open their hearts and connect their hearts and souls to business because mostly business is about the head and the wallet, mm -hmm. right? It's all an analytical and it's all about the numbers and all about the bottom line, but we forget the human being in between, mm -hmm. the heart and soul, right? And so we need to connect and make business about that, the whole human. Mm -hmm. So that's that's really been my journey and it's really been, you know, I would say I had 20 years of uh, unfulfilled and uh, sort of a miserable professional existence for the most part. <laughs> not really believing in what I was doing and having some degree of shame about it. Uh, and then finding my, you know, true purpose uh, on the other side of that. And, and then coming alive, you know, and sort of for the first time experiencing joy and, and fulfillment in my work. That's really happened in 2005, so almost 18 years ago. Mm. And you describe something that I think is is familiar for many of us you know working in corporate life is this idea that we're almost like doing and being who we think we should be in that organizational system rather than being true to ourselves within it so I love your language of like awaken and humanity and soul because these are not words that are used that often in many organizations so What's it like for you to be someone who's really swimming against the tide when it comes to expectations of what people think of consultants and professors in terms of business? <laughs> well, yeah, certainly uh, it is less of that today. I mean, the tide itself is turning. You know, I keep swimming yeah. in that, but the tide, I think, is becoming uh, friendlier to that. Certainly in the beginning, it was a challenge. You know, the world, as I said, there's a there's a certain way of being, certain expectations, certain norms. Every profession has them, society has them, every culture has them, and you're supposed to, you know, kind of come on and play the game. And I was blessed with somewhat of an outsider lens mm -hmm. and perspective and, and some degree of, you know, connecting or staying connected to my authentic self, even as I was being pushed in all those directions. So I never fully drank the Kool-Aid and I never bought the whole story. And I always had a skeptic's uh, eye on it. Because it, it did not resonate with my true self. I mean, I was idealistic. I was peace-loving. I was harmony-seeking. You know, I was uh, trusting. I had all these qualities as a human, as a child. And the business world really felt like a violation of many of those things mm -hmm. to me, the way it was talked about and the way it was practiced. It was all about using people. It was all about feeding your own ego and you know, 
growing for the sake of growing and accumulating and so forth. And, you know, that's a story that did not resonate with me. And I felt in my entire MBA and PhD educations, I'm talking about six years, I was never once moved and never, you know, inspired. You know, I was intellectually stimulated at times, but I was never touched in my heart and my soul. And I crave that. That's something that I was missing and I didn't even know I was missing it until I found it. And I said, oh my God, it can also be this. So uh, yeah, it, it was it was a challenging time and a lot of soul searching. I had some, as I said, some degree of shame. You know, My inner dialogue was that my father also got a PhD, but he got a PhD in agriculture science. And he was wanted to cure world hunger. You know, that's what his dream was. And I get a PhD in marketing. And all I'm trying to do is to sell more junk food, you know? <laughs> stuff you don't need, you know? and it's not going to be good for you. I mean, that's kind of my inner dialogue, you know, and uh, reflected not only a lack of purpose, but a degree of shame. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I started a book called The Shame of Marketing. Mm-hmm. It's really uh, going to write about everything that was wrong with my profession. And fortunately, my mentor turned that around. He told me, you know, Raj, people want to hear about the solution, not the problem. So let's talk about what is the solution pointing at here. So so that turned it around, and that then led to Farms of Endearment, and that led to Conscious Capitalism and everything else. Mm. So why did you start the Conscious Capitalism movement? What was kind of the impetus behind that? Well, so I, uh, as I said, the book Shame of Marketing turned into the opposite of that. I was looking for, for the companies that are loved by everybody, customers especially, and they don't spend a ton of money doing that. You can't buy love. Most companies are out there wasting so much money on ads and coupons and junk mail. And yet uh, customer trust is low and customer loyalty is extremely low as well. And so I found the opposite case. And I found these companies that were loved not only by customers, but also by employees, you know, community suppliers. So they were stakeholder oriented. They had a reason for being, so which is the higher purpose, right? And their core values that they shared Purpose and values is what connected them to their employees, to their customers, to their investors and others. And they have leaders who cared about the people and cared about the purpose. They weren't just mercenary leaders looking to use people to make as much money as possible. And the cultures where people actually love their work and look forward to going to work rather than the typical, you know, thank God it's Friday and you know, uh, heart attacks are 20% higher on Mondays and all of that. So I just discovered this whole other way of being and and I was literally in tears when I was writing that book. And I knew that something profound was happening for me. Something was shifting inside me because I had never experienced, nor could I even imagine experiencing tears of joy connected to my work. I had experienced frustration, disappointment, anger, sense of envy. But tears of joy, that's a rare thing in life. Connected to work. Yeah, when your child is born, that's different. But connected to your work. And I said, Wow. My body is telling me something here. And by the way, I had not been able to cry for 20 years for anything before that. Okay. Uh, something was, there was a wall around my heart for various reasons, things in my life. But suddenly that, 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 that shield was cracked. And, in, you know, in the most unlikely of ways, you know, just writing about the stories of these companies and what they were doing for people. And I said, wow, such deep humanity can exist, you know, in a for-profit publicly traded company. And so that just, Connected me, you know, it's like my purpose found me. So I, I was, I had been following my heartbreak all those years, everything that was not working and it was dysfunctional and causing pain and suffering in the world, in business and marketing. And now I found the other side. I found the bliss. 
here's a way of being that results in tremendous love and joy throughout the business system, right? And then a couple of months later, when we did the financial analysis and we find that these companies are nine times more successful over a 10-year period, right? that set of companies that we had identified that met these criteria, then that was just like icing on the cake. I mean, that was like, wow, this is not even a... Until then, I was saying, yeah, this is a better way to go. Even if it doesn't make more money, this is this is the better way because you know you're, you're, there's so many things that we don't measure that matter, right? So much. Right. And, and so we should do this regardless. And then we said, wow, there's also a business case for this. And that just became very powerful. So I immediately knew I had to dedicate the rest of my life to this. Mm-hmm. And I created a mind map. I still have it on my computer. It was called the Institute for New Capitalism or Inc. Right? And I had this grand <laughs> vision. I said, I want to reinvent capitalism. And I, you know, and I want to educate professors and CEOs and students. and everything. But Here's another way of being. This is not what I was taught in business school. This is not what the economists and Milton Friedman and all of them say business is about. They say business is about squeezing out every last penny from all the you know, resources out there. People are resources and the planet is a resource. Yeah, it's completely dehumanized. And here saying business is the most human activity. Business is about the exchange of love. Business is about us taking care of each other. Right? Governments don't take care of us in a free society. Businesses are given the opportunity to serve us right, and take care of our needs. And that's a healing act. Right? I came to the healing language later, but ultimately I think business is fundamentally about healing. It's about reducing suffering and about bringing more joy to the world. And so I was on fire with that and I had this vision and I started to share it with the CEOs and others that I knew and nobody cared. You know, they are like, <laughs> yeah, whatever, you know, <laughs> everybody's trapped in their paradigm, right? right. Until I met John Mackey. You know, John Mackey read that book and he loved it and invited me to spend a day with him. John Mackey is the founder of Simple Foods and the CEO yeah. at the time. And uh, invited me to spend a day. And at the end of that day at dinner, I shared. I had my mind map in my jacket pocket and I shared it with him. And he looked at it and said, that's exactly my vision. But I like the phrase conscious capitalism, mm-hmm. which was a phrase coined by Mohammed Yunus of the Grameen Bank in Bangladesh. Now, he was referring to a social business right. that only has a social purpose. Right? We were using the phrase more broadly. that when you elevate consciousness, with which you do business, then it becomes about the collective well-being. Oh, we see the interconnection, the interdependence, we're all one, right? And all the possibilities that open up when you do that. And so that was the first time I had heard that phrase and kind of you know, struck a chord. There's something unusual about that pairing of those two words. Uh, and so, yeah, that's how it started. And that was October 2007. A few months later, we had a retreat at John's Ranch in, uh, near Austin. We invited about a dozen people to hang out for four days and talk about this and see what we want to do. And at the end of that, I said, yeah, let's start a movement. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and then that October, we had our first conference. And it was incredible. I mean, we had, this was the most profoundly moving three days of my life until that mm-hmm. point. And, and that was the beginning. And now it's been, uh, it's been what, 2008 until now, so 15 years. We're, mm-hmm. we're coming up on our fifteen CEO conference now. And it's become a global movement, and we have chapters, uh, as you saw in Columbus, with 30 other U.S. cities, about 15 other countries. Uh, but the idea is getting known out there and you know, getting accepted. And there are some parallel movements that use somewhat different language and have slightly different emphasis. But yeah, there's a lot of um, questioning of the old way and offering of some new new alternatives. And I think this, this movement is really has, has great promise to address all the big challenges we face 
and bring much more joy and meaning in the world. Because the old model, I was just reading a, a, a Ram Das quote. Do you know Ram Das? Yes. <laughs> so he said the myths, you know, the myth we were functioning under uh, are not functional because the myth was that if you had enough, you would be happy. Right? He said, we have enough and we're not happy. And we in the Western world have the most. And we're not happy. And so that myth is dying. And the question is, you know, how, where do we go from here? Right? And can we, uh, you know, create a world in which instead of grabbing for more, people start to become more. Mm-hmm. That's what really it's about. It's not about grabbing more and more. That's what our culture teaches us, right? Grab as much as you can. Right? Grab and go. Right. <laughs> as opposed to become more, become who you are meant to be. And from that place, give more. You know, mm-hmm. serve. Serve. That's that's. That's our real destiny and our, our real intended purpose in this life. So, mm. Yeah, it's been very gratifying. It's so funny listening to you speaking, Raj. It feels so, I'm going to say the word obvious in a way, that this integration, this direction that you're you're hoping to take business into, it seems so obvious. And yet, of course, it's not in so many ways. And I love the way you opened uh, the Healing Organization book, because you said it's about a mind-blowing, heart-opening, world-changing rethinking of business. And that, I think, speaks to the power of what you're talking about here, because we have ended up with a world that I, you know, if in my good times, on my good days, I think we didn't really intend potentially to be here or have these outcomes because we're now starting to see the cost of doing business in the way that we have done since probably the 60s and 70s. We're starting to see that. And it's almost now where it's unbelievable to think that we don't have to change. I almost feel like we're in this space now where we really do need to change in the direction that you're guiding us into. And you mentioned at the beginning that the tide is changing a little. And I would say your very first book, which I did read in 2014, because I was so relieved we suddenly had some data for my argument and making the case to leaders that this is a way we could go in. But I, I'd love to have a sense of, you know, how do you see the appetite changing? And are, have there been any milestones where you think, yeah, this is really breaking people open now, you know, and they're starting to listen to what we're saying? Yeah. So I would say that we've seen that all along. I think 2019 felt like a bit of a watershed because mm. you had the uh, business roundtable, which is the uh, 200 or so largest U.S. companies. Right issuing a statement on redefining the purpose of business using pretty much our language. And they said that it was borrowed from us, that every business should have a purpose. It needs to define a purpose separate from its need to be profitable. And that business should uh, think about and, and uh, look to the well-being of all of their stakeholders and, and do that for the long term, right? And this was a radical departure when they said the primary purpose of business is to create economic value, right? That was the, the previous thing. So that was a big felt like a, a shift and that you know Davos that year was also about stakeholder capitalism. Every major business publication had cover stories about reimagining capitalism and reinventing capitalism and, and all of that. So that did feel like a moment right. that we said, wow. So there's, you know, you never know when a tipping point is near, right. right? Because the world looks one way, but there are forces at play underneath the surface 
there are those gears are moving and suddenly you wake up and it's a different world. Now you think about the day the Berlin Wall mm. was taken down, right? November 8th of 1989, I think. The day before, people could not have imagined that. Right. A week before, a month before, a year before, right? It was like, wow, this, this thing, this battle between communism and capitalism is going to go on for centuries and it'll end with a nuclear war. That was kind of everybody's belief, right? The world was divided into these two blocks, these two ideologies. That was the battle, right? And suddenly, without a gunshot being fired, in a way, that debate was over, right? That wall was taken down. People flooded across it. Within weeks, within months, a couple of years, dozens of countries moved towards freedom and democracy and, and capitalism, right? And of course, we've seen some Know, backtracking recently and so forth, all of that is true. But overall, it was a fundamental paradigm shift, right? And a, and a tipping point. And I believe such a tipping point is in our future in business as well. As you said, some of these are obvious. Anybody with a you know decent, good human being, well brought up human being, caring, loving human, well, you know, somebody really influenced by their mother, I would say, you know, that has that mother energy in them which is what's been missing, would naturally gravitate to this. I mean, there are companies that are 150 years old that were operating in this way. Mm -hmm. In India, we have the Tatas you know, that have, from day one had this in their DNA. So this is not a radically new formula. Right? This is why it's like similar to a human life. Of course, we should have a purpose. We shouldn't just be about how much can I earn and then die. Mm -hmm. right? It's like, what am I doing with this life? So, and so that tipping point... I think, as I said, felt like it was coming nearer in 19, and then the pandemic happened, and everything got put on a little bit of a hold, and we had to pivot in many other ways, and you know, there was uh, things survived. We've kind of dropped into survival mode, right? And so some of these questions, you know, for a while took a backseat. And then, of course, we've entered this incredible era of politicization of every damn thing. Mm -hmm. Now this has become politicized, right? So one of the guys running for president on the Republican side wrote a book called Woke Capitalism or Woke Inc. He called it Woke Inc., which was a you know, full-throated critique of our movement and all of these kinds of movement that, yeah, business, they're all pretending and business needs to be just about profit and so forth. And uh, and of course, this, the, the whole right has latched on to this word of woke, used it as a cudgel to whack at anything that they would, they don't want to see progress of any kind. And so if we label it woke and then just beat the hell out of it. And so that's what I'm seeing in the present moment. Mm. Present moment is a moment of backlash. It's like episode two of Star Wars, the Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> yes. okay? And in a way, it's inevitable. You could completely predictable when you have a new order that's trying to be birthed into a world. When you have a paradigm shift that is underway, you know, in the beginning, everybody laughs at the new paradigm. Oh, yeah. That's silly, whatever. You know? um, and then it starts to gain some traction and starts to suddenly feel like a threat. And the established, the old order, then starts to mount that counteroffensive. Because they want to preserve the status quo. See, the status quo has served a certain percentage of people very well. Mm -hmm. Maybe the top 20%. Certainly the top 1% and the one-tenth of 1% have been extraordinarily well-served by their own definition of success, which is all about power and money. And they've accumulated extraordinary amounts of power and money. And that's their consciousness is at that level for the most part. And so for them, the world has worked beautifully. I mean, I was, at a, I was with a CEO of a company in Boston some years ago and 
Some people had asked me to speak to him because they had been working on the culture and the culture was extremely toxic and fear-based and people were afraid to say what they really felt and they knew things weren't right, but they could not talk about it and so forth. Right? So everybody was kind of frozen with fear. And so I went to talk to him about all of these things and the value of becoming this kind of a company. And at the end he says, listen, our stock is up 40%. Uh, in the last 18 months, and I, I received a $40 million bonus last year, okay? And I think we're doing fine, you know? We're on all running on all eight cylinders here. This is fine. So, yeah, we don't need any of this. Huh? And so there's that kind of mentality out there. And so I think that is the real danger of the present moment. So I'm not, dis, I'm not uh, dissuaded, certainly, and I'm not hope, feeling hopeless. I'm just feeling the need to have the courage of our convictions and to double down and make sure that we, you know, we stay on this path. Mm -hmm. We cannot let these temporary, you know, these things like passing laws in Texas and Florida and some other states where you cannot use any ESG considerations as a business you know, or, or as an investment fund, et cetera. And they're trying to ban those companies from doing business in those states. I mean, there's a lot of that. Mm -hmm. And a fear-based response. And we've seen a lack of moral courage in this country, which is shocking to me. There's a lot of people who have just bowed down to that kind of you know, pressure and become, in fact, uh, aligned with it. I think we need to double down. I mean, this, this again, jokingly, I say this, say episode three, which is the return of the Jedi. Right. You know, we, cannot, we cannot disband and just go home. We need to stay resolute because the stakes are higher by the day. Mm. Stakes were high when we started 15 years ago. They are exponentially higher today. We do not have the luxury of time and we do not the, you know, in the past you could say, are there two roads you can take? You can continue operating this way or you can choose this better way. And today we say, unless you choose a better way, we don't have a future. That old way of doing things will not work. It's going to lead to a destruction of our ecosystem and the destruction of other species on a scale unimaginable. And so, yeah, we have to double down. Stakes are incredibly high. And the sense of urgency is even greater. Yeah. Now, there's a few things you said there that I'd like to just kind of pull on a little bit. Um, one of them, so listening to you, and you're talking like semi-jokingly about, you know, the Empire Strikes Back and the Return of the Jedi. It's But what I hear in, in your narrative, it's almost like you hold the sword of truth, like your lightsaber is the truth, because it feels like something that we need to listen to and something that resonates because of this honesty in the narrative of what you're speaking to, right? So that's one piece I just wanted to put into our conversation. But the second thing is, um, like, I think we have a mutual friend in, in uh, Richard Barrett. And one of the things I've heard Richard say over the years is, this is a consciousness problem. Yeah. And you talked there about the level of consciousness that, you know, are causing some issues at, at this point. You know, could you speak a little bit more to that and how that plays into the scenarios and maybe even our decisions about whether we are going to listen to the, the new future that's trying to emerge or, or whether we're just going to stay with the way it's always been? Yeah, so a lot of people are trapped in the existing paradigm. Uh, they've been educated that way. They've been gone to business schools and business schools are as guilty or more guilty of this perpetuating the status quo than, than anything else because 
I just read a number, and I'm not sure if it's accurate, but it says 17 million people graduate every year worldwide uh, with a degree in business or economics or management or something related. You know? And we're teaching them for the most part the wrong things. We're teaching them the wrong paradigms, right? And so, yeah, there's a lot that uh, you know that business schools have done to perpetuate that. And um, yeah, I'm sorry, go back to the question again. I seem to have lost. So it's just really about how does consciousness play in? And so, yeah, so a lot of people, so it's it's kind of a self-fulfilling thing, right? People get attracted who already have that consciousness of of ego and self and money and power. And that's all I care about. And here's business school that's going to teach me how to do that. And you learn that and then you turbocharge and then you climb the corporate ladder. And now we have a system that systematically promotes people like that. There's some very disturbing research. The most disturbing research I've seen is looking at the incidence of sociopaths and psychopaths uh, in society generally, which is one or two percent. But in high security prisons, it's about 20 percent. And in executive boardrooms and executive suites, it's also in some studies about 20 percent. 20 percent of them actually meet the the, uh, clinical uh, definition of what is a sociopath. The the single profession with the highest incidence of sociopaths is CEO. Mm. Okay. Second is surgeons, interestingly. Right. So we've created again a system almost like a Darwinian selection. You know, we've selected and promoted and grown these people that are now occupying the rungs of power. Mm. They're the mm. gatekeepers as to whether a company changes or not. Boards of directors, right? The C-suite. And I would say the vast majority of them are very much locked into and committed to the old paradigm. Mm -hmm. They haven't had that awakening and they aren't interested because by their definition of success, it's all about power and money, Mm -hmm. right? They're accumulating that and they they feel like they're going to die rich and miserable, as we know. (laughs) The case, most people, you know, when we, that race leads to that outcome. Mm -hmm. And so I think that is a real challenge. Um, The awakening of leaders some of them are amenable to that. Some of them are open to, you know, there's a possibility, I think, deep down. Now, what prevents that also and what gives them that level of consciousness also is, you know, they're operating in kind of a fear-based, scarcity-based worldview. And that is rooted in their upbringing and their childhood and specifically in some of their traumas as well. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of unhealed wounds underneath all of that, Right. And, and I think that's the biggest epidemic in the world that we face is this epidemic of unhealed trauma. Mm. That we all have some degree of post-traumatic stress injury and very few people acknowledge it, let alone do anything about it. And therefore you end up operating in this reactive mode, in this sort of self-protective mode, right? And you inflict so much suffering on others and the higher you go, the more your capacity to inflict suffering. And that's really, I think, what we're seeing. Mm. That makes a lot of sense as you speak to that. So it also seems to me that who we're being and have we done our own work, right? our own healing, as you would say, this feels like, as you're speaking, it feels very much like your purpose in life. But I'd love to hear, how did you find that? How did you connect to your purpose and I mean, I'm I'm paraphrasing here. That might not be how you describe your purpose, Raj. <laughs> well, yeah, my purpose, uh, I was not consciously searching for my purpose because uh, it wasn't that common back, I would say, in 80s, right. 90s, et cetera. Now, to, now purpose is like pervasive, right? Right. He's talking about it. And so, but I knew 
you know, I knew what resonated with me and what did not. So I was, to use Andrew Harvey's language, I was following my heartbreak. Mm -hmm. I was seeing things that were causing me to stop and say, oh my God, that's terrible. Whereas my colleagues in the PhD program and then later on my faculty colleagues didn't care about any of those things. It didn't, it didn't touch them at all. But it really impacted me about the impact we were having through business, especially in marketing, right, on, on people. And we were using women's bodies to sell products and body dysmorphia and eating disorders and depression. What has, what's that doing to the psyche of, of young women? And we were, you know, getting kids hooked on junky food and junky cereals and, you know, junky games and all kinds of stuff. Right? manipulating them and you know just lots of that kind of abuse so i was following my heartbreak and for 10 years i wrote about all the things that were wrong in the world of business and marketing all my research was about that and then ultimately um, i discovered the other side of that when i did that research uh, that became firms of endearment i started as a shame of marketing ultimately i found the bliss joseph campbell talked about follow your bliss andrew harvey said follow your heartbreak Right? And for me, it was an experiential process of following my heartbreak and through that process, asking the questions and then discovering the other side of that, that gave me the bliss that I was seeking, which is the cure for that heartbreak. Right? And so for me, my purpose was very much, you know, it kind of found me mm. through my journey. Right? And that, that can be one way. I mean, there, there are many ways to discover purpose. One is kind of an intellectual exercise. Right? What am I good at? What do I love? What does the world need? Right. What can I get? You know that holy key guy, and you know that's kind of an analytical process, somewhat left brain. And you know, yeah, I'm sure that can help. And we use that sometimes in our programs. There's kind of a spiritual thing that some people just hear a calling from God if they believe in God. Somehow they're just told, or they believe they're told. In my case, it was experiential. I discovered my purpose you know, in that way, uh, and so that's. But, but I, what I did discover is that that's not the end of the journey. Mm. You know, that is, you know, that is <laughs> that's a, uh, you know, a station along the journey, but that's not the end of the journey. So I had purpose in my life, uh, but I did not really have inner peace. and I did not have happiness outside of work. My life was you know, kind of, uh, you know, not aligned, you know, not integrated. And I was in a way escaping from my other part of my life into my work and making it very unhealthy in the sense of being completely out of balance, not paying enough attention to my mental, emotional, spirit, uh, or, or uh, other kinds of well-being, physical well-being, only focused on my spiritual, which was the meaning and purpose. Right? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that is what I, one of the messages in my book is that it's not the end that you find purpose and you live happily, happily ever after. You have to also work on other things. In your life. So let's talk about your new book, Awaken. Because it feels like something of a departure from like, you know, Raj Sisodia, the professor and the research of, of your previous publications to be something that feels a lot more intimate and personal. So tell me a little bit about why you wrote that book. Yeah, you're very right that, you know, this I think is my 15th book, but I've never written about myself. Hmm. All this I came was in the healing organization, I think maybe in the prologue. I talked yeah. a little bit about it. But that was, that was the time when I started to think about these kinds of questions. So when I was writing The Healing Organization in 2018, and I, I was full steam ahead, I was, I've got the whole summer blocked out for writing retreats, I had done all my interviews, 
and getting them transcribed and everything was all set now. We had all the ingredients, now we had to bake this cake. And four women kind of stopped me in my tracks. You know, all dear friends of mine who I trusted, you know, my co-author Nilima on Shakti Leadership, uh, Lynn Twist, and then a coach I worked with and one other person. And they all said, oh, you're writing a book about healing. Uh, what about your own healing? Mm-hmm. And I, I initially, I laughed it off. I said, oh, I don't have time for that. You know, I've got a book deadline here. <laughs> no, there's no time for healing. Uh, book is due on October 5th. And they said, no, you have to make time for this. I said, well, I said, I think I'm okay. I don't think I need it. They said, no, you need healing. Everybody needs healing. And you certainly cannot and must not write a book about healing if you do not explicitly and consciously work on your own healing. So I had the wisdom to listen to them. And I called the publisher and delayed that book by five months. And I said yes to a number of things that I had already turned down. Going to the Himalayas with the Shakti spiritual journeys. You know, we do these Shakti journeys around the world to a deeply spiritual place. So this was on the border between India and China, uh, Tibet, uh, where there's the deepest seat of Buddhist wisdom, yeah? Tibetan Buddhism, the Indian equivalent of that. Went to all these monasteries and you know learned a lot about the Buddhist perspective on suffering and healing and so forth. I, I went to a silent retreat in upstate New York at a place called Peace Village uh, with Peter Senge and David Cooper Ryder and some other people who I really looked up to in the world of business as academics and had an incredible experience over those four days where I was completely in nature and completely in silence, just wandering around with my notebook and receiving incredible downloads of you know, insights about my life, about life in general, about all kinds of things. And in a way, the outlines of this book and those seven steps that I have came in that silent retreat. I also worked with a coach for the first time and she gave me insights and made sense of my life in a way that I had not been able to. And I also went to the Amazon rainforest and uh, with the Pachamama Alliance, they take groups of people deep into the uh, rainforest in Ecuador and you spend 10 days with the indigenous people there, the Achuar and the Zapara. You experience all kinds of incredible things. First of all, connecting with nature, you know, which is so needed because most of us are completely disconnected from nature, right? We think we come into this world, we come out of this world. Mm-hmm. We're as much part of nature as a tree or a bee, but we completely separate ourselves. And hence, we are in the process of killing you know, Mother Earth, right? We're destroying our own ecosystem. So really get connected to that. And then also all the shamanic healing modalities that they have, tobacco and dream interpretation, and also the ayahuasca, which they've done for maybe 10,000 years in the Amazon. It's an incredible life-changing experience that I had with ayahuasca midway through that trip. And so all of these gave me great insights about life, about my own journey, that were not going to be part of the healing organization. That book was about Mm -hmm. companies, what they were doing. And so, and on that time, I said, oh, I need to really write about this. And I was going to write a book called The Path, you know, and these seven steps that came to me. Um, but then as I started writing about it, I mean, I was drawn to write about my life. Mm-hmm. And I just started connecting all of those things because that's how it came to me in the silent retreat is making sense of my own life. And yeah, by the way, that year, I also did some other planned journeys, not just ayahuasca, but I also experienced MDMA and, you know, psilocybin mushrooms. And, you know, that whole world opened up to me that I didn't know existed. I'd heard vaguely about psychedelics. I didn't know what that was. The 60s, there were psychedelics, all these funny colors. <laughs> I didn't know that it opens up your consciousness and gives you access to deep and profound wisdom about life and about your life and making sense of why things happen. All kinds of things. 
so yeah, that year was a year of conscious awakening for me. And I felt compelled to share that. You know, I had to write it. And I started writing about all of those things. And then many things happened. You know, my parents died the following year. I, I learned about some severe trauma that had existed in our family. Some deep family secrets came to the surface. And many things started making sense. So why we've had so much suffering in our family system, you know, I'm talking about mm -hmm. family origin, my father's siblings and so forth. And a lot of things just started to make sense. So I, I just, I felt, wow, I have lived an unusual kind of a life. You know, I was in India until seven. I was born into this warrior caste and leave India and I'm living all over the world and then go back to India when I'm 12. And then I finish high school, college, I come back to the U.S. and become, a, but it's unusual. But also every one of those things started to then fit into a, a, a narrative arc as to what it all meant and why it was a necessary piece of that, of that, that puzzle that ultimately led me to, to do the work that I believe I was put here to do, that I'm the channel for some of this stuff to come through, right? And so, uh, so I felt that that was a, an obligation. I felt I had to write that. You know, one of my editors told me years ago, in fact, before we wrote The Healing Organization, uh, it had been a couple of years, and you know, I was on this, oh, my God, I haven't written a book in a while. You got to write a book, you know. <laughs> so and Michael Gelb and I had been talking about, oh, we should do a book together someday, because he had 17 books by that time. And we've known each other a long time. And so we we're brainstorming and coming up with ideas and then sharing them with, with an editor that I had worked with before I really, really liked. And he kept turning them down one after the other. <laughs> Finally, he said, Raj, you know, you don't write a book when you think it's time to write a book. You know, you write a book when there's an idea that's there's something in you that's so compelling that it has to be written. You cannot not write it, you know? And so that's what the healing organization as an idea became. Mm. I said, wow, you know, you feel it in your body. Mm. Right? I said, oh, yeah, yeah, this this is it. You know, this is what we've been waiting for. And then, you know, Awaken, I think, had a similar energy to it. And the name came later, but uh, I felt like I had to tell it. My story is unusual, you know, the, the blend of... Mm. East and West, the blend of masculine, feminine, you know, the past, the future, I mean, all of that, you know, there's a meta message in that for humanity, I believe. I believe so. And in reading it, I mean, I want to just, if anybody's listening here and is interested, I highly recommend Awaken because it's a really interesting book on a number of different levels, I think. But I want to take us to the seven steps because in that book, instead of just teaching the reader about how they can kind of really integrate, find their purpose, become whole, all these things, you're actually embodying it through your own life story, which was fascinating for me to read. And the way that you've reframed some of the trauma, not just individually, but the family trauma. I was in tears reading that when you went back to India <laughs> for that. But I'd love you to, just for our listeners, really take us through these seven steps um, that that kind of underlie the whole book. Because in a way, for me, Raj, this is the origin of what shifts perspective and shifts consciousness when we do this work internally, what the decisions we make externally shift. Yeah, absolutely. So these seven steps came to me in that silent retreat mm -hmm. and stayed with me. And then my my story has elements of all of those. Right, but the book I ended up writing, Awaken, is not you know, explicitly structured in that sequence. 
Right. You know, in the end, I do talk about those things a little bit, but I'm writing another book that will explicitly have right. uh, the steps. To, uh, we call it the recovery, seven steps to the re- to recovery of self. Mm. Who are you? What's your true, purest self? And how do you get to that? And then how do you bring that into the world? And so the seven steps are an amalgamation of things that different people talk about. People talk, you know, people talk about you have to know yourself, right? you have to love yourself, you have to be yourself, etc. But I put them into a sequence. So yes, you have to know yourself. It's a starting point. Who are you? What what makes you unique and distinct from anybody else who has ever lived uh, and will ever live? Right. Every one of us comes with a unique imprint, and you have to know that it's hard because society immediately starts putting you into boxes and puts labels, and you've got a culture, and you've got a religion, and you've got a profession, and you've got you know all this stuff, right? I am this, this, and this. But you know who are you? What's your what's your true nature? You know what were you born as? What's your real spirit? So that's step number one. You have to know yourself. And that, that's a huge, you know, they are, they are you know, they say there's, there's so much we can go inward and learn so much about ourselves, right? But there are multitudes within, I think is the phrase that is used. But then you have to love yourself as well. And, and that's not an automatic thing that when you know yourself, you will love yourself because in my case, and I can only speak to that, but I know some other people as well, because your parents' voice matters a lot, Right. My partner Neha says that be careful what you say to your children because your outer voice to them becomes their inner voice for the rest of their life. Right? What you say out loud is what they're going to keep saying to themselves. So in my case, I had a father who I didn't know until I was seven because he was away getting his bachelor's and then master's and then PhD. And he came back into our lives when I was seven. And then I never got close to him because first of all, I had missed those seven years, right? which is, I don't know how you replace that. But also he was so different from me and I was much more like my mother. And it's, it's very, um, you know, sort of idealistic, trusting, peace-loving kid in my head, you know, and very intellectually or, you know, school-oriented. And he came into my life and he told me, this is what you are and that's not okay. You know, you're too much in your head, you need to be street smart, you know, it doesn't matter if you get good grades in school. You're too trusting, you shouldn't trust anybody. You're too idealistic, you need to be pragmatic. Right? You're too... He's loving you should be rough and tough, you know. So I got the message that I'm defective, that who I am is not okay. And certainly not enough. I need to be the opposite of that. Right? Not only is it not enough, I need to be the actual opposite of that. So I tried to be that you know, many years, many decades, in fact. So so to the extent that I knew myself, I despised myself. And by the way, this is a pretty common thing, you know. I've read some number that 70 to 80 percent, or 80 to 90 percent of people. Don't love themselves. A lot of people hate themselves. My daughter's growing up, they say, Oh, I hate my nose, I hate my hair, I hate my shoulders, I hate my skin, I hate my everything about them. They just hate it. I said, My God, you are a gift to yourself. You know, you didn't make yourself. You've got so many extraordinary things. You have to be grateful. And not only accepting of who you are, but ultimately you are a gift to yourself and to the world. And at some point you have to wake up to that reality. Right? Who you are is unique. And that's needed. What the world needs is for everyone to be who they are. So the next step is then be yourself. Rest comfortably in yourself. Don't act, you know, be rest in your own presence, right? That's that's an important one. And then the next one was uh, choose your life. This came to me also in the silent retreat because when it was time for meals, you, know, you take a tray and there are silent volunteers behind the counter and there's three or four or five things that have been made. And you're not supposed to communicate at all. So therefore, you can't say, I want this and not that. So they just plop a bunch of food in your tray. 
then you sit down quietly and eat it, right? And it occurred to me that that's kind of a metaphor for life, that life is not a buffet. You don't get to say, okay, I'll take that mother and that father, and I'll take that uh, you know, country to be born, that religion. You can't pick any of it, right? It's not, there's no menu. You're given a tray full of stuff, right? And some of it you know, is bitter, and some of it looks unappetizing, but you need all of it. That's your curriculum for this life. That's what's meant to evolve you and get you to where you need to be in this life. Right? So, so therefore, I was kind of stuck in that victim mentality of saying, why did I have that father? Why couldn't I have a loving father? You know, or why was I born into this extremely harsh, feudal subculture filled with abuse and you know, all kinds of conflict and so forth, etc. I had all these things that why you oh, always me, right? So I was, in a way, a victim of my own life. So, you know, you cannot change the past, certainly, but if you choose it in your mind, in your heart, then it can serve you. Mm-hmm. Say, yeah, I choose to be born to that father. I choose to be, you know, have a special needs son. I choose to... That then there's a gift in that that can get unlocked. Mm-hmm. Then it can serve you, right? And I think every single thing, every person you meet, every experience you have is ultimately there to, to evolve you, Right? Everybody, I think again, Ramdas, neither friend nor foe, maybe it was Carl Young, neither friend nor foe, lie. Everyone you meet is there as your teacher. Mm. Everybody's there to teach you. Right? So that's choose your life. That's step number four. Then express yourself. So one thing to be yourself, but then what am I supposed to be as part of this bigger picture, right? And that's where I talk about the hero's journey. Every one of us has to become that butterfly. You know, we're all these caterpillars, we're existing at a certain level. But the caterpillar goes through this metamorphosis, has to die to itself, become the food for its next version, right? And then becomes this creature of light and beauty, but also spreading, flourishing in the world. It's a different plane of existence, right? Caterpillar versus butterfly. Each of us has to, should, go on that kind of a journey to become who we are meant to be, to evolve into our truer selves, our greater selves, you know, to face that, you know, uh, our deepest fears, Again, Joseph Campbell said, the cave that you fear to enter holds the treasures that you seek, right? So the dark night of the soul, confronting that, slaying the dragon, you know, all of that. All the big movies have been based upon this <laughs> hero's journey, right? That's a classic human myth. But every one of us has to go through that, not once, but multiple times. So we have to choose growth over safety. Because if you choose safety all the time, you're stuck. If you're not growing, you're dying, basically. So that's about well, that, that part of life, you know, which is about expressing yourself and bringing your gift, you know, go through all of that hero's journey so that you bring back the elixir that your community needs. It's not just for you that you're going on those journeys. You're doing it on behalf of the collective. And then becoming whole, which is about integrating the fragmentation that exists with all of us. Masculine, feminine, we all have, as Carl Jung said, every man has an inner woman, every woman has an inner man. We need to integrate that. We're not just gender, does not have to imprison us into sort of a fractured state of being, that we can be tough-minded and tender-hearted at the same time, as Martin Luther King said. So we need to journey towards wholeness, and that also includes a mother and father energy, as I talked about, masculine and feminine, but also the elder and the child, right? The wisdom and the uh, 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 meaning and purpose and legacy and transcendence of the wise you know, the, the divine self within you, and then the healthy child. Joy, playfulness, creativity, all of that comes from healthy child energy. And most of us have a wounded inner child. Mm-hmm. And that's what gets to the last step, actually. 
right? So when you do all these four, then you become what I call, what we call the wise fool of tough love. You have the wisdom of the elder, you've got the playfulness, foolishness, that child, and you've got the toughness and the, and the love, right? So that's about wholeness. And then the last one is becoming uh, or healing yourself. And that's where it's about, you, know, you have to heal your body, you have to heal your uh, wounds and traumas. Those are psychic. So there's physical body, but then there's the psychic wounds and traumas that we're all carrying. I believe we have an epidemic. Uh, I think universally, we all have some degree of PTSI, post-traumatic stress injury. We may not have a diagnosed PTSD, but we all have trauma in our life. Living is traumatic. Every life has it to different varying degrees, but it all is trauma. And by minimizing it, we what we what most people do is ah, I didn't go to Afghanistan, I didn't face any of those things. So what you know, what does it matter? Everybody, life is hard. No, just dismissing it doesn't mean it doesn't affect you. It's, it's impacting you. Just because something is commonplace doesn't make it less significant. Just because everybody has it doesn't mean it doesn't matter, right? Everybody has trauma, and what most people do, they conceal it, never talk about it. Then you use, you've got plenty of escape mechanisms, right? Every corner, there's a liquor store. and Every other corner, there's a marijuana store. You can numb everything you know, all day long. Right. Numb it, we conceal it, and then we relive it, right? It never goes away. You get that short-term high, but then we suffer the long-term low. What we really have to do is reveal it. What is my trauma? Talk about it, write about it. I've done that in my book, as you, as you read. Right? And then you have to really feel it. In the process of writing this book, I mean, I relived a lot of those experiences. My body, my mind, I mean, everything was impacted. And we have to then grieve it and, and ultimately heal it. And there are many modalities that are available now. These psychedelics help. You know, there's EMDR. There's all kinds of therapies. Mm -hmm. Gabor Mate's work is incredible in this. Mm -hmm. So many things that are available out there. So healing these traumas is a big one. Because until you do that, you know, you are, as again, Carl Jung said, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. So you don't even, you're not even in charge of your own life. You're not driving your own car. You're being driven around and you're reacting to things. You're not really able to be proactive or creative. In your life. So we have to heal those. And that's a big part of what the last part of the book is about. In my case, healing my personal trauma, most of that will have to do with my father. It was a deep father wound that I had to heal. Then there's the family trauma, things that happened before I was born. What happened in my family system, and I lived in the shadow of that. I was in that energy system that that created. And there was severe trauma that I discovered in our family of origin. I was, I, I, 2019 is when I learned about it. It happened 75 years ago. And that, that explained so much to me. Oh, my God, this makes sense now. Then there's the, collective, there's the ancestral trauma. Things that happened three, four, five generations ago are still impacting us. You know, epigenetics is now revealing that your gene expression is impacted by what happened to your ancestors, right? And so in my case, I come from this warrior tradition and my ancestors went to war, were killed, you know, in all those hundreds of invasions that India experienced and their women and children committed mass suicide. And all that trauma sits in my lineage. Hmm. Ignoring it doesn't, doesn't work. You have to acknowledge it, right? And find a way to heal from it. And then the collective trauma, right? Climate change, this pandemic, even politically, what's happening in our country and all kinds of things. There's things that the whole world is sharing. Uh, so there's a lot of trauma. And so we have to heal from that. And that's, I think, one of the last messages of the book. We have to acknowledge it and heal from it. And then the last, last message is really, in my case, I was blessed or given these parents who are extreme polar opposites, father who had tremendous personal power but did not come from love at all. 
and a mother who was pure love but had no personal power. And to me, the Holy Grail, can you combine unconditional love with great personal power? Then we can change the world for the better. If we can become that being, right? We need to empower that love, that, that, which must be a foundation of us. Mm -hmm. So that kind of in a nutshell, are the, those are the seven steps. It's easy to say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's a lot of work underneath each of those as to how one lives into that. And it seems very valuable to leaders to actually, you know, listen to and, and follow and integrate and embody those steps. But I'm noticing the time now, Raj. So I would just like to ask you one final question. If there's something you'd hoped we'd get to today, something you'd want to share with our listeners, maybe it's a few words of wisdom or some advice for them if they're starting out on this journey, what might it be? Well, I would say, you know, have the courage, you know, to look at the truth of, of, of your life and your upbringing and, and find those wounds and traumas because they exist in all of us. Mm. And so that's a starting point. And the other piece of it, which I write about in the book is, you know, what I experienced in that ayahuasca journey, I got a very profound message and it came as an acronym called the list that everything we do must come from these four things, love, innocence, simplicity, and truth. Mm. Every action as a leader, as a human should be grounded in love, not fear, not anger, not jealousy, not greed, that we need to reconnect back to the innocence that is our birthright. We're born innocent, we get corrupted by the ways of the world, and we don't have a choice. We're a child, right? But when you're an adult, you do have a choice. You can choose to live with innocence. I will not knowingly cause unnecessary suffering for another. Simplicity, keep in mind what really matters, and the truth. What is your commitment to the truth? You know, we spin in marketing. We talk, you know, we, you know, there's no idea of truth in politics, right, in business. But truth matters. Truth is even more fundamental than peace. Without truth, there can be no peace. That is why South Africa had to have the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Because there is no reconciliation without the truth first being acknowledged, brought into the room. So live by the list and work on healing yourself. And combine unconditional love with personal power. I love that. Raj, thank you so much. I have really enjoyed our conversation today. And I know our listeners will have gained so many insights from you. So thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome, Jane. Thank you for having me. Okay, guys, that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much for listening in. Before we go, I want to remind you that all the resources and links for our guests are in the show notes at sacredchangemakers.com. A big thank you to the members of the Sacred Changemakers Inner Circle, who are our podcast sponsors and our extended community, who are helping us make a global impact aligned with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, all visible on our website. And if you're looking for more soul in your life and business, if you have a sense that you have a calling, maybe you're here to make a bigger impact or simply connect with others on your change-making journey. If our episode resonated with you today, I hope you'll consider joining us. Again, you can find out more at sacredchangemakers.com. But for now, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your intention and efforts to make our world a better place. Until next time, lots of love.